This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Aranda people. We pay our deepest respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We all misbehave sometimes. Want to change the world, indulge in some bad behaviour. Hello and welcome to Bad Behaviour. My name is Nicola. And I'm Rosalind. And welcome back. We are so excited to have you here for another great episode. Today's episode is really important to me. I'm so excited to be able to share this conversation. And to get us started, I had a question for you, Roz. Um, I wanted to know what was the first time in your life that you remember fearing fatness? As in fearing being fat or having, I guess both, right? Like having opinions on it. Yeah. So fearing it, fearing becoming in yourself, fearing it in other people, like the, the feelings of shame and disgust. Like, do you have any memories of that manifesting in your own life? So that's a really interesting question because I've been thinking a lot about it coming up to this episode and honestly I really struggled to recollect instances when I was young where it was a big issue but I I now know (laughs) that there were many but I think it's a very insidious thing that was taught to me from a very young age that fat was bad and that to call someone fat was one of the worst insults you could give. And I know that that was my experience, but I can't sort of pinpoint it because it it was very prevalent throughout. Yeah, it's interesting. I think I was telling you before, you know, leading into this, this episode, I realized I don't know enough about fat phobia because only recently have I really become aware of the institutionalized nature of it. I recently listened to an episode of Maintenance Phase podcast, um, which is co-hosted by Aubrey Gordon. And it was about fat bias. And I think that was really interesting because she raised a point that people who are not fat living as a fat person in the world thinks that when you say fat phobia, you're talking about body issues, personal relationships to body, getting through, you know, body neutrality, connection to your body, all of those things. And every woman can relate to it because every woman has had commentary on their body and has felt inadequate in their body because of the society we live in. What I hadn't really clocked, (laughs) which is I'm kind of ashamed of, but, you know, I'm learning, is that fat phobia is an institutionalized thing. It's something that has caused immense suffering for fat people because they can't get health care, they can't travel on planes. It's so rampant that everyday people treat them like they are a huge problem in life and that they should be deeply, deeply ashamed of themselves for putting themselves in this position, regardless of the fact that they don't know them. Like It is so much bigger than a personal relationship to your body, which is already so fucking hard to deal with. So when you ask me that question, I kind of don't have an answer for you at all because it's so prevalent that I'm still kind of working through the fact that I even have that bias which is really interesting. We've caught you at a good time then. (laughs) This conversation (laughs) is perfect to have right now because 
I feel really um, like this is one of the the hills that I will die on, you know, talking about fat phobia and making space for people to to unlearn the biases that you were talking about. I think it's so important and I think it's one of the last conversations to happen in a lot of spaces. Like we're very willing to unlearn our biases about you know, racism and sexuality and all these other things. But I found that people are really resistant to having conversations about fat phobia and confronting their own fat phobia because, as you said, it's so insidious. It's so, you know, typically if you've grown up in the Western world from birth, the kind of language, the guilt, the shame it's all a part of your worldview. So having to unlearn that and also reckon with the fact that you've contributed as well to that world vision is really confronting. It's the way it's packaged. It's wrapped up in this idea of of a health issue. And so if you're fat phobic, you're a good person almost. Like it's like you're you're helping the world because you're saying I'm not condoning a health issue when actually <laughs> that's such a fallacious argument if you were to mirror that with um if someone were to say I don't agree with your sexuality because it's unnatural and it's a health issue blah 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 people would go that is awful how could you say that that is such a fallacious argument you are so on the wrong page but because somehow this narrative around fatness has come back to health, people think that it's okay to be genuinely awful human beings. I've always been in a bigger body um, and it's, I think, I've, I'm still pretty much in a similar place to you. Like I'm at the early stages of my journey, but I also have that lens of like having experienced some of the bias that comes with being in a bigger body as well. And that's why it's just so important for me to have this conversation. And our guest today uh, really is a leader in this space. Um, And I think the ideas that she brings to the table and the way that she frames it and the empathy as well and kindness that she shares is so important when you're having these conversations. So let's get into it. Could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? I work in the realm of fat activism. Most people use the the term body positivity. I'm really focused on ending weight discrimination and also helping people feel better about their bodies no matter what size they are, but especially if they're in a larger body. And I am an author, I've written a few books. I also lecture at universities and I work with businesses and corporations like Facebook uh, on these issues about like size inclusivity and kind of creating a future where bigger bodies are actually considered in different spaces. I've dedicated a little over 10 years of my life really researching this and I have a deep, deep, deep personal and political slash professional commitment to this work. Would you tell us a little bit about your relationship with your body growing up? Yeah, um, I mean, growing up when I was very little, I was introduced to fat phobia and fat shame at the age of five. 
which is pretty typical for children in the West. But before that, I had this beautiful relationship to my body. It was like totally inspired by curiosity and pleasure. And I felt so, I mean, like a lot of children, I felt so connected to everything and everyone. And I saw everything and everyone as um, having the potential to, you know, create joy, create connection, create fun. I did not see my body as separate from me. It was just completely seamless. And then when I was introduced to fat phobia at five years old by my classmates, by the boys in my class, that was when the, the relationship started to fracture. I started to have an idea of that I had a self and then I had a body and that something was wrong with my body and that it wasn't, and I think there was specifically this sense that my body, my fat body, wasn't the real me. And I think we see this meme a lot, right? This idea that like, you know, you're a thin person trapped inside a fat person's body and the thin person is the real you. I really believed it. I spent about 20 years of my life from that moment forward really learning to hate myself, learning to starve myself. And would you mind giving a definition of fat phobia? Yeah, I mean, fat phobia is, it's a form of bigotry or discrimination that says that fat people are morally, physically, and also have naturally, automatically have poor health. So that's what fat phobia is. And how does diet culture fit into that? I mean, diet culture could not exist without fat phobia. Um, people just wouldn't diet if there wasn't a fear of being fat. People are afraid of being fat because our culture treats fat people horribly. It took me a long time to unpack this. And so I think for a lot of people, they don't understand, right? Like when they say, I want to lose weight, what they're actually saying is, I want to be loved. I want to be respected. I want to be able to find clothes I like. I want people to take me seriously as a romantic partner. I don't want to get discriminated against at the doctor. When people diet, it's typically about that. It's about running away as far as you can from being someone who is treated poorly because of fat phobia. The phrase diet culture, especially the word culture, really speaks to the fact that it's inescapable. Like it's everywhere. What are some of the harmful ways that fat phobia manifests itself? The medical field has some of the highest rates of bias against higher weight people of any industry or field, which is really troubling. And, and what that really looks like is a number of really startling things. First of all, higher weight people get screened for cancer less frequently. Higher weight people are more likely to walk away from a doctor's appointment with essentially a prescription for dieting instead of getting their actual symptoms treated. Higher weight people are more likely to delay care because they're afraid of getting weighed or shamed at the doctor. And this leads to overall poorer health. Another way that it really shows up is the wage gap. And at least in the United States, plus size women get paid anywhere between $9,000 and $19,000 less per year than their straight size counterparts. And I think, you know, beyond that, there's a lot of data ensconced within that finding that is really startling too. Like for example, the fact that um, in general, plus size people 
get funneled and pushed into more physically laborious caretaking jobs. And thin people are often funneled to more client-facing, higher-paying jobs. When you think about just like companies and optics and who they want to quote-unquote represent them, there's favorable hiring happening for smaller people. Again, in the United States and in the UK, plus-size people make up 70% of the population. When you really kind of put into perspective the fact that um, this is not some tiny minority, this is the majority of more and more Western populations. And so I just kind of think it's really staggering to me um, like how this hierarchy is created really based on a very small number of people when we think about the moments that are really important to society, like marriage, graduation from college or secondary school, celebrating things, right? Like plus size fashion is almost completely inaccessible. It's very difficult to find like a tuxedo beyond the very, very limited um, straight size run. Very difficult to find a wedding dress. Very difficult to find like in the United States, there's like prom is like one of the biggest things, right? Like, you know, it's very difficult to find a prom dress if you're plus size. And it sort of sends this message of like who gets to have those moments. There's a lot more like obviously um, higher weight people experience weight discrimination in the dating world. Um, there's evidence even that fat people, higher weight people experience discrimination even when it comes to making friends, you know? And then not to mention the fact that like once, you know, let's say in the workplace, once you do get hired, you're probably gonna be in a work environment where there's ubiquitous diet and weight loss talk, which is essentially yet another sign that you're not welcome as you are and that you should definitely change, which is a very stressful message to be receiving every day in addition to all the other stressors that work create, you know? I've heard you speak about this idea of preoccupation with your future self, this idea of, you know, someday I'll be able to go to that party when I fit into that dress or opting out of big life moments because you're fat and you don't feel comfortable being photographed and it's such a sad concept and I feel like me in particular like I carry that that grief and that sadness around with me a lot from moments where I've like sidelined myself from joy because I've gained weight or something like that so would you be able to speak to that idea a little bit and how have have you experienced that you know, sadness as well of not feeling like you have a right to joy. Yeah. Oh, I think that's a really good way to put it is like not feeling like you have a right to joy. And, and I mean, honestly, it's not like we're taught that that's not something that we were born believing. I mean, I think I immediately thought about food and all the food that I missed out on. I, I remember I wrote this essay a long time ago that was about like the food cemetery in my mind and how I can see all of the beautiful, delicious celebratory meals, like they're etched into the headstones in the cemetery because I remember them like so vividly and what it was like to be like, I don't deserve to have this. Someday I will be able to have this when I am thin. You know, I think a lot of us um, have experiences like that. Uh, certainly diet culture and fat phobia are 
They're built on this idea that someday you're going to be able to deserve this when you're in the quote unquote right body. Um, and you, you know, you can wear the bathing suit later. You can wear the lipstick you love later. You can, you know, like I, I remember something I used to do, which is very common for, um, people, women in particular, I've found is you buy clothes that doesn't fit you and they become aspirational. And so your, your closet is full of clothing that doesn't fit. And it's just a consistent reminder of the fact that like, you don't get to live in this moment. You don't get to enjoy anything. Your entire life should be dedicated to becoming the kind of person who can fit into that tiny size two dress or whatever. Um, and so I'm hugely, I'm very aware. And for years I lived like that. Um, and, and I, I really do think it really is about this idea of like punishment. Um, like you have the wrong body and, uh, and you don't get to enjoy anything. I think the thing that people often don't realize is that that sense of self-loathing, that sense that you don't deserve anything good, that doesn't go away when you lose weight. For me, a big turning point was around being taught that I did not have to diet anymore, that I did not have to ever try to lose a single pound again, um, that I had the right to date people who um, saw me as fine and beautiful the way that I was, that no one got to tell me what my body size was and that I could live my best life right now at my current size, right? And and I think I was like so eye-opening. It was like winning the lottery, it felt like. Like this idea that I could just be a fat person forever and just live my best life, like eat the nachos, wear the pencil skirt now, you know, and just like let the world deal with it. Um, it's just been since then I've just been doing that and it's been really powerful. And it's not like, it's not like you just make a decision and then your life just changes overnight. It's, it's certainly an ongoing process. But unlike dieting, it feels like a process that is life affirming. I feel like dieting is like a death practice. You know, it kills your spirit. It certainly destroys your mental health. It's certainly, for a lot of people, it threatens their physical health. It takes joy out of everything. And, and I think that future self, like when I stopped seeing my future self as a thin person, and started seeing my future self as a fat person. And there was just like so much joy in it. It was so scary at first, but now it's like, it just feels so intuitive. I can just imagine like my, like, you know, my tummy looking the same, my double chin and my cheeks. And like, as I'm 40 and as I'm 50 and as I'm 60 and as I'm 70, So I really wanted to talk to you more about this idea of preoccupation with your future self, Roz, because it was a concept that I came across when researching for Virgie's episode and it honestly, it encapsulated all these feelings and experiences that I have had in my life as a plus size person that I haven't been able to like group together. It honestly, her answer was really meaningful to me and it also made me really sad, I have to admit, because the cruelness that comes from sidelining yourself from joy or always visualizing a future where you're 
you know, your hopes and dreams are contingent on this idea of you being in a thinner body. It just, it feels so mean. It feels so nasty. And I definitely do that to myself all the time. You know, when I have my little daydreams about future moments, I, in most of those daydreams, I am in a thin body. Absolutely. Like my body has changed. I'm thin and, and, you know, I'm happy in those moments too. And I think, you know, Virgie mentioned this idea of like buying clothes that don't fit you or keeping clothes that don't fit you because you think, oh, I'll, you know, eventually I will be able to fit into those. And when I do, I will be able to be happy. I will be able to be present. You know, I've done that all my life. I can't remember any moments where I haven't you know purchased things that don't are not exactly what I need in that moment if that makes sense and again it's another way that you just dismiss the body that you're currently in and the way it changes and the way you know for me like I particularly during the pandemic like I gained a lot of weight in my time I've like lost weight gained weight like my body has been a changing vessel for me and throughout the time that it's changed I don't ever remember meeting it and being like okay welcome like I'm gonna be grateful for where you are where you've carried me right now instead of thinking of a future where you look completely different (laughs) and Oh, just it's so heavy and it's filled with a lot of grief. Yeah, it's awful. And it's also, I mean, I've been in situations before and I think I've been more cognizant of it in recent years. I have family members who have made pretty fat phobic jokes. And when I pipe up and go, that was inappropriate and rude and mean and we should not be saying that it always comes back to, but why are you defending them? And this is a health issue. And and so I suddenly have to be a lawyer. <laughs> you know? I have to figure out how to, how to navigate it. And it's really difficult to, because we're talking about something that is so ingrained. It's almost hard to verbalize. These conversations are so important for me as someone who's learning about fat phobia and my place in the structures of oppression because I know that willing or unwilling I probably have contributed how I navigate as a better ally and it's been really difficult to pinpoint that because in order to be a better ally (laughs) you need to notice and for some reason fat phobia is one of those things that that you almost don't even see it yeah absolutely and I mean, we'll go back to the interview with Virgie in a moment and she talks about the health question. I asked her about how she deals with that question because honestly, in any discussion about fatness, that is always the first question that gets asked and it's so dehumanizing it completely strips away any of like the substance of these discussions and it absolutely infuriates me that people derail the conversation with like the what about health question and it's honestly that's why I wanted to talk to you about this idea of like preoccupation with future self when you talk about fat phobia it's so important to strip it back to those really basic like human aspects of it because otherwise it just 
gets derailed and it I think another thing that occurs to me as you talk about this stuff is um the human aspect to this is so important so I kind of want to issue a challenge to anyone who listens and thinks that they don't have fat phobia bias to to just sort of take a second if you ever see a fat person out about and think to yourself am I thinking of this person as a fat person or am I thinking as this person as a human being and just examine that well I also think it's like that's a great call to action I think this is I would issue the same call to action for anyone who has never experienced um the shame that comes with going into a store and them not having your size so if if you fit into straight size clothing and you are not reckoning with fat phobia then you're not doing enough it's what we mentioned earlier like the unlearning process it's really uncomfortable and for a lot of thin women I think it brings up a lot of stuff about like their own perceptions of themselves and like insecurities and how they see themselves in the world absolutely their relationship with men it's two issues it's two separate things <laughs> and it's and it's very difficult to separate them because they feel the same exactly you go into it and you want to empathize and you don't want to be the bad guy you know you go oh i i sort of get what you're saying because i have experienced this well actually you understand in the way that that we often talk about in bad behavior you understand as a as an outsider as a a kind of anecdotal this is a little bit similar I'm starting to understand your story but I will never fully understand where you're coming from it's the same it is two separate issues and we we need to realize that before you can do the work yeah and it's not even like I think the something I want to say as well is it makes you a better person in general and it makes you feel it makes you feel better with your body in general if you unlearn fat phobia like as a straight sized person like if you do the work to unlearn it and to to understand like the harm that you may have caused by that bias as well like that again it opens doors for you to kind of like step out of this diet culture mindset to move into a place where like you're exercising for yourself you're eating for yourself like I cannot stress enough how (laughs) beneficial it is for everyone to just be decent and do the work Did you know that the average person uses over 11,000 menstrual disposable products in their lifetime? And it's estimated that over 100 billion menstrual disposables end up in landfill annually. That's why we are so excited to collaborate with Muddy Body, the new way to period. I personally love Muddy Body products and I'm so excited to work with them. Muddy Body products help me feel my best when I'm on my period and I highly recommend them to anyone looking to explore a more sustainable and comfortable way to have your period. They are also committed to creating a positive impact as a brand. This includes helping to end period poverty and supporting health education programs that normalise and open up conversations around our bodies, which is something we're also trying to do here on Bad Behaviour. Check out modibody.com for more details. Modibody is the new way to period. You briefly mentioned on access to health care and doctors, and I'm aware that when you talk about fat phobia, you can't escape from 
the health argument. That's like one of the first things a lot of people will say when you're arguing it with them. It's like the, the not all men of the fat phobia world. And I'm just wondering, I still am kind of at a loss for how to respond to that effectively. I think I need to equip myself with a bit more knowledge around it and some facts. So how do you navigate that question? I definitely see it. For the most part, I do see it as a derailing mechanism. I don't see it as a source of genuine curiosity uh, or, or born of genuine curiosity. Um, because at the end of the day, what I've just told you about the reality of fallout of fat phobia, I have a very difficult time understanding uh, as someone who lectures about this, talks about this all the time. If I were to spend an hour talking to you about all the things I just shared with you about what it's like being a fat person, the fact that your first question is, but what about health? strikes me as exceedingly callous, exceedingly sort of dehumanizing. I'm like, I've just told you the horrible reality that higher weight people face on every front from like clothing to jobs to healthcare to access to romantic relationships or meaningful cultural moments. And your first thought is, does this person even deserve to have those? That, that's what I hear when I hear like, does this person even get to deserve to have those things if they're higher weight? Um, so I kind of want to really begin with that. I think it's important to sort of bracket what the next part that I'm about to say, you know, it starts with that for me. In our overall health, societal factors comprise 70% of our overall health. Only 30% of our overall health is determined by individual factors. So um, I think it's important to say, right, like if most of a person's health is determined by whether or not their society is treating them fairly, giving them medical care, making sure that they don't have, they don't experience discrimination, right? Then why in the world are we asking individual people to lose weight to change a number that's that big? Like I often ask, I'm like, whenever I talk about this and I put the slide up of the pie chart, I'm like, if societal factors comprise more than double individual factors, why aren't we as enthusiastic and stoked about changing, moving that needle as we are about telling people to eat salad? I mean, I think when you just think about it from a logical perspective, it doesn't make any sense. And then the final thing that I kind of want to share, right, data aside, there are so many things that we can do to improve um, anyone's health. Like right now, you know, like if you ask me as a fat person, how can I improve your health? I, you know, it could be like, could you treat me like a person? Could you offer me a cup of tea? Could you meditate with me? Could you go on a walk with me? Could you introduce me to your family? Could you treat me like, uh, like an equal, right? Could you um, make sure that when we go out to eat, lunch that there's a seat that I can comfortably sit in. Um, when your coworker makes fun of me, can you stand up for me? Um, you know, like I can give you a list. I can keep going. I could have a thousand things. Um, there are so many things that we can do to promote health. Um, and fat phobia is nowhere on that list. You have this beautiful campaign, lose, hate, not wait. Um, and I'm wondering how 
Do you have any beginning steps of how to do that? Like any prompts or things to think about? You kind of spoke about visualization a bit. Has that been a tool in that journey for you? Yeah, that's been a tool. I mean, I think, you know, to begin with, right, start thinking about not restricting food. I mean, that's that's sort of the first step is like stop believing that you can live your whole life like this and you deserve to live your whole life like this. Pretty much no one enjoys restricting food and dieting. <laughs> so, you know, what would it look like to believe that you actually matter, that your joy matters, that, you know, that you deserve good things? I think, like, that's a really powerful starting point, right? And I think, you know, starting with, for me, the path really began with I'm not restricting food anymore. That was probably the most powerful decision I've possibly ever made in my life. You know, I think what's great is once you stop restricting food, you immediately are beginning the work of recuperating your intuition. This is the information highway that your body is constantly giving you information. And what dieting, among other things, what that does is that it shuts down that information. It shuts down that highway because the highway is telling you, don't starve me. I want to eat. I want to eat till I'm full. I want to eat what I want. Do not starve me. That's what that's telling you. So you have to be shutting that voice down every day that you're dieting. So once you stop doing that, then you start, you open up the highway again and it starts to tell you stuff. I think that's what's so powerful, right? So, so one thing for me, the next step I found was, all right, I've got to protect myself from these horrible messages where are they coming from? So one of the big ones was dating. And I was like, all right, we got to make a new rule. If anybody says anything negative about how I eat or my body, zero tolerance, they're gone. That was probably the most powerful thing I did in the dating realm in my entire life. It entirely changed my dating pool like almost overnight. Okay. So I've got to have rules around dating. Cause that's a big, that for me, like romantic sexual access was a big part of why I dieted. So if now you're like, I'm not dieting and I'm not, I'm not dating or sleeping with anybody who isn't down with that. Um, and who has visibly shown fat phobia, of course, you're going to be dating a totally different kind of person. It kind of just went from there. I was like, yeah, it kind of went from dating. And then I was like, okay, what about media? The media I'm consuming, the magazines that I have subscriptions to, I just canceled my subscriptions to like the more celebrity gossip magazines because they're like shame machines. Then I was like, okay, how do I want to interact differently with my family, my fat phobic family members? Figured that out, right? Then I was like, okay, what about my job? And so I think what's great is you just kind of go through your life. One thing that I've been doing recently, which I love, I get so much inspiration and so much body acceptance practice from being in nature because there is no part of your body, no matter how much you don't like it, that isn't out there in nature, just living its best life unapologetically. So what I, what I did like a couple weeks ago, I posted this on Instagram, but I took a picture of my inner thigh, which has scarring from chub rub and has little rolls from my fat and like how my hair follicles are kind of different on my inner thigh. And I just went out in nature and looked for um, plants, trees, 
and things that were in nature that looked like my inner thigh. And it was so easy to find. Like I found this cactus that had the same hair follicle vibe as I did. And I found this tree that had like all these little lumps that look like fat rolls. Nature mirrors us because we are nature. I think that's where I'm at now in my process. That's so beautiful. I love that so much. I think it's it's because so, it's one of the few places as well where um, you're not gonna get that like fat phobia signaling or diet culture signaling. Like it's one of the few sacred places that we have left, you know. So I think that's so beautiful, and I will definitely try that exercise because I love the idea of finding you know different parts of myself reflected in these like stoic portraits of nature thank you so much to the beautiful Virgie for joining us for this episode this truly was so soul nourishing and such a needed conversation in my life Um, I feel really, really fulfilled from it. Um, So I just wanted to to thank her so immensely for showing up in that way. I think I wanted to end this episode with a discussion about declaring peace. So being able to declare peace with your body and the way that it currently moves and the space it takes up in the world right now and putting into place some of those ideas that Virgie spoke about of losing hate and not weight. And I thought that both of us could have a little chat about what we do personally to to be able to maybe get to a place of peace. Um, so for me, I think a really important, um, I will say, I feel <laughs> quite you know, I feel like I'm really well versed in this topic intellectually like I can talk about it really well and I can I can analyze it I can see how it manifests in society but it's one of those things this is a common theme in bad behavior is me being like I can talk about it but I can't do it (laughs) and it's kind of similar with you know this idea of declaring peace and losing hate not weight but I certainly with saying that I will say I'm in a better place than I was a few years ago and I think that that's really important and that's a growth that I don't acknowledge enough and I don't celebrate it enough. And for me personally, like as with so many people, this was the case when we were all locked down and in quarantine, you know, I gained weight. That was what my body needed at the time. It was it needed to feel comfort. It needed food. It needed nourishment. I was stressed, like all of those things and the patterns of behavior that so many other people around the world experienced. And I think it was one of the first times in my life that that didn't completely derail me, like the gaining weight didn't completely like take me out of every single moment in my life and back to like this mindset of like restricting and like punishing so that that's been a really positive step is just being like you know acknowledging in myself okay I don't feel great about this but I'm not going to punish myself or restrict because of it I'm just gonna acknowledge that it's probably what my body needed 
And even if I can't see it right now, maybe I will in a few years and I'll definitely be grateful that I didn't completely, you know, ruin myself in the process of, of coming to terms with it. So I think that's been a really important first step. And then another really important first step for me as well is um, I think you have to consume and surround yourself with more fat bodies that's um, a requirement like in when I scroll through my Instagram feed I do not really have any um, straight size people that I follow like a lot of the people I follow are curvy plus size women and non-binary people and men and I think like that's been transformative for me because it means that I'm watching them be joyful I'm watching them date I'm watching them fall in love I'm watching them you know try on new outfits and be happy and like that feels so good to consume after you know for having my worldview for so long be around the idea that that's not accessible to fat people what about you do you have any tips or tricks that have helped I do. I do indeed. Yeah, it's it's interesting when we talk about anything that, that has to do with body image and all of this stuff. I think a lot of people can relate in various ways. And all of these ideas around calling yourself out and everything are really important. And I think that's the first one. <laughs> it's being aware that it's so easy to fall into a pattern of if I think about this, I'm going to realize how terrible I've been or I don't want to be the bad guy. I don't want to put myself in a position of hating myself for the things I think but you've got to get through that you've got to allow yourself to be the bad guy so that you can really be aware of the things that you're thinking and the harm that you do from that thinking um I and I think that's really hard especially if you have friends and family who are going through it in a more uh confronting way you know if if they are actually experiencing the effects of institutionalized repression in in any kind of way it can be really hard to stand up and say I'm a part of it and it's really confronting to feel like that because you just have this sort of pit in yourself of oh no like I've I've really fucked up and I didn't even know and I don't even know how to start because I'm just one little one little teardrop in this well of shame and I, I don't know, I think my first thing is that's okay. It's all right to be really uncomfortable, but you have to allow yourself to be uncomfortable before you're going to begin the process. And I'm in the beginning of that process. I'm going to own up to that, but that's probably my first thing. Start getting aware of it. Start getting over yourself. <laughs> I'll be harsh and just go, I'm going to be uncomfortable in this situation and do better. My second thing, all this really great TikTok and I wish I could credit it because I don't remember who did it, but I was speaking to my mother the other day and I found this tip that's very helpful and it was from that TikTok. I think everyone's heard of affirmations where you look in the mirror and you go, I am strong, I am okay, I will get through this, you know, I am beautiful, all of those things. And to, to some extent that is really helpful, but some people find that 
really difficult because it just feels like you're lying to yourself you know you're standing there like going I am strong I am beautiful and inside you're going I'm not why am I saying this stuff I'm trying to trick my brain it's not real and I definitely feel that way if I'm experiencing gender dysphoria or going through anything I just I find that really tough (laughs) and not very helpful So this TikTok told me about affirmations rather than affirmations. So instead of saying an affirmation, change it to a what if question. So rather than I am strong, I am beautiful, I will get through this. You say, what if I am strong? What if I am beautiful? What if I will get through this? And suddenly you're not lying to yourself or tricking yourself. You're just starting a conversation with yourself about a positive experience rather than a negative one. And it's such an open-ended question that you can take it at any point in your journey. And I've really found that really, really helpful because it's, it's started conversations with myself that I haven't been able to engage in before uh, in a way that affirmations can't. So that's probably another one. I really want to reiterate what Virgie said too, about like when you've taken the time to confront and to unlearn give yourself space to embody you know like give yourself space to really heal and be okay you know it doesn't have to be an fast paced every day you you conquer a new mountain type of things because a lot of this I think for me too what I've realized is a lot of this shame like it lives in my body and I can move in a way or I can like start doing something new with my life in a way that kind of unlocks a piece of it that I didn't know even existed and so if I'm honouring that my body is exactly where it needs to be right now, then I have to honour as well that I can't really predict what's going to, you know, what way my journey's going to go. So as always, I'm sending a lot of love to anyone who's confronting this type of stuff and I, I'm wishing you so much good energy and good vibes in your journey to declaring peace. Well, we've loved having you for this episode and if you have any tips or tidbits about your own declaration of peace with your body, send us an Instagram or a message on, send us an Instagram. (laughs) Oh my God. Hello, Boomer. Send us us an email. Info at badbehaviour.com. Oh wait, no. Info at (laughs) badbehaviourpodcast.com. I know the email. (laughs) (laughs) Despite the incoherent nature of this sentiment, we really do want to hear from you. If you're sitting there thinking, I've got a tip, don't just keep it to yourself. I really want to know. I want to know. The power of that thought and the way that it will help other people and it will... It will help us as well. So as always, we end this episode with us begging you to engage with us. (laughs) (laughs) Every time we've got anyone message us, it's just been so amazing. So yes, info at badbehaviorpodcast.com or just shoot us a message on Instagram. The executive producer for this episode was Nicola Kranich. Bad Behaviour is produced by Rosalind Enkatel, Nicola Kranich and Namchedju Magembe. Hosted by Rosalind Enkatel and Nicola Kranich. 
Editing and sound design by Namchedja Magembe. Our logo was designed by Bonnie Eichelberger. We all misbehave sometimes. Want to change the world, indulge in some bad